please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, the Old Testament is Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Uh, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God, and from the New Testament, Matthew twenty six, thirty six to forty six. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The Gospel of our Lord. Well, if you've been with us uh, the last number of weeks, um, we've been on walking through the early chapters of Genesis. Um, we had a slight pause in that last week when Thomas Hayes preached the, um, from the parable of the good Grammaritan slash, slash out Samaritan. And uh, if you want to listen to that, I highly recommend it. That would be on our website or on our podcast. Uh, Thomas Hayes is one of our elders um, and he preached for us last week while Eric is on sabbatical. Eric, our pastor, is on sabbatical this summer, which means he is resting and reorienting his life into rhythms that, um, that make sense and that, uh, that are maintainable for a long time. One of the major uh, indicators of, uh, of contributions to healthy church is longevity of a pastor. And so we would like our pastor to be with us for quite some time. And so this is one of those practices that contributes to longevity. So that's where he is. And I ask you to pray for him all through the summer. 
as you, uh, as you remember he and Kathy and the boys. Um, so we're in Genesis. We're going to jump in. Would you pray, for, uh, pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we need your help as we turn to your word, uh, not because it's unclear, but because our hearts are so muddled and distracted, and we long to be the men and women that you are calling us to be, uh, who you've made us to be. So speak to us now, give us ears to hear, we pray. Hold all the things that, uh, that are too big for us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, I have a conundrum. This conundrum is, where ought Poldark to be? Where should he be? Right? Ross Poldark, if you've seen this series, Ross Poldark is a, uh, a Welsh highborn you know, he's got a title and land, he's a lord, but then he goes away to fight in the American Revolution. He comes back and like his lands are all in disarray. The copper mine that he owns is not producing anymore. Uh, he's basically uh, returns to abject poverty. But as, the, as, he, as he comes back, this is a BBC series and a series of books, if you're curious where I got that. Um, as he, uh, it's on Amazon Prime, right? I think we got this from the Jellies. It's on Amazon Prime. Okay, yeah, yeah. They're evangelists. <laughs> Woo! So, uh, where ought he to be? Which leads me to my next uh, point about Ross Poldark, because he, as he kind of grows back into his position as, as of lordship over this whole area, you know, it's the old feudal system. So basically, so he's got all these lands, and all these people live on the land and rent from him and work the land, and uh, and his job uh, is to make the land prosperous, and, and so the people who live there can do well, can have enough to eat, all this. But where should he be? You know, Ross Poldark is uh, he's often offered, oh, you're a lord of the land. Why don't you come and, and help us make the laws or sit in judgment in these seats you know, of honor where you hear cases? Uh, and Ross is always like, no, no, no. I need to go work the fields with my shirt off. That's important <laughs> to me. Or he goes and works in the mine and he's down there digging and finding the copper. Where should he be? He's the man uh, who, had, who was born into a lofty position but he occupies this lowly state, and to accent that, he's got a wife, Demelza, early reveal, they get married, but she is like, uh, it lives, grows up in abject poverty, um, and then rises to become his wife, and now she's a lady. So she lit, she's a woman of the earth who rises up to become, uh, you know, a, a titled woman. And there's this huge tension throughout the plot, throughout the, the series, and there's a, a massive attraction, right, as, as Kristen said, not just, um, not just that we want Poldark next to us, but like, I kind of want to be Ross Poldark, right? Like, he is awesome. He is, he is a voice for the poor, and he's got washboard abs. I mean, what more do you want in a man? I don't know. But there's something attractive to us about that. There's something that kind of echoes and reverberates in my heart. Um, about being a man of the earth, but a man of, of loftiness, or in biblical categories, um, a man of the dust and a man of heaven, right? We could do the same thing with Star Wars. 
Think about it. Luke, the desert. He's got to go to the stars. Then he's got to come back to the desert. Okay, we're with me. A man of the stars, a man of the dirt. So there's this thing, there's this re- uh, reverberance in us that, uh, that I think we're going to see in our passage today. As we look at what does it mean to be the image of God and what it means, in very brief, is to have a dusty dominion. What it means to be the image of God is to be men and women who have a dusty dominion. Side note, this is this one, image of God, uh, mankind he made them, male and female he created them. This is about our, our unity, the unity of mankind. This is not about, uh, in chapter 2, he makes Adam and then he makes Eve. But in this chapter, uh, in this, he is, it's emphasizing the union, the unified dominion of mankind to live in the image of God. This is a bit hot. Can you turn that down just a hair? So to summarize, we are looking at the origins of the universe as told in Genesis 1. This is not the only origin passage in our Bible. It doesn't create all of our theology of creation, right? But it is an important passage for us to understand not so much how things came into being, how did uh, you know, planets get placed just the right distance so that the gravity keeps them together but, but doesn't let them smash into God doesn't answer that. He's not interested in that. The, uh, the original readers aren't asking those questions. What we're told here is who. We're told this, uh, about this God. And we talked about early on that he um, exists in the darkness and over the chaos. Those things don't concern him. He is in control over them. And he goes on to bring about creation and separate day from night. And he goes on to separate, we talked a couple weeks ago, from the lower seas from the upper seas. Do you remember this? And now there's this upper sea. You'll go back and look at day two if you want. And this upper sea is never declared good because here's this, in Hebrew it's called the rakia, the the barrier that holds that upper sea up. That barrier is what gives way in the flood of Noah, if you recall that story. This barrier, and the, the birds all fly right under that barrier, That's their dominion. But above that barrier, there's this great dirty sea that makes our sky blue. That's why the sky is blue. And beyond that is God's space, the heavens. And having a barrier between the life of heaven and earth is bad. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And so right from the very beginning, we see in creation, there's a trajectory to creation. Creation, though, is declared very good, is not very complete. It's not all the way done. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago, that means that our job is not to get back to the garden. Our job is not to buy a big piece of property with a nice house far out on Lookout Mountain and never talk to anybody and have a mile-long driveway, right? That's not our job. Is it okay to own that? Yes, it's okay to own that as long as it's not the utter goal of your life. The goal of our life is that God among his people have the life of heaven coming to earth, joining the life of earth and bringing completion among his people. Okay, so we said there's just a couple things as a long intro, I'm sorry. A couple things, a few things that you have to hold. You don't have to know if this, when it says day, is that 24 hours? You don't have to know that. It's, the passage isn't clear about that. You don't have to hold on to that. If you want to hold on to that, that's legitimate. It's a fine way to view this passage. Lots of good Christians have a diversity of opinions on this passage. What you do have to know is that our God existed before all things and created all things out of nothing by the power of his word, okay? He is the first cause. He is above all. And he created by his word on purpose 
not as an accident or an afterthought, not as a, a fact of being lonely. He created and he is over it all. Those are the first two things you have to hold on to. And the third is in this passage that he created mankind on purpose. In next, uh, in next chapter, you'll see he created Adam and Eve historically. That was an actual event that he created specifically, specially, historically. This creation account is introducing us to this God. And he creates, as the pinnacle of his creation... He creates royal man and woman. Now we all, like I said earlier, have this kind of idea of the man of dust, man of the heavens, this royalty thing that echoes in us. And my cousin uh, always knew, has always known that she's royalty. My mom and her sister had, had nine kids in five years, kind of all dispersed, and we all lived in town together. So we ran as this massive herd. And, uh, and we would be hanging out together. And as my, my oldest cousin was, you know, getting uh, old enough to walk and run around and, and just old enough to talk. She knew that she was in charge of everything. And one of the things that she was in charge of, she took the position of the, the sun and the moon, which God gave to govern the night and the day and the seasons and the changing. And, and Shannon decided that her job was to take that position. And she'd walk around about dusk and declare unto all her dominion, it's getting dark, it's getting dark. And my mom and, and her sister called her the herald of the dark. And Shannon knew that all her dominion, all of us cousins and her mother's kitchen needed to respect her royal authority to proclaim when it was time to get dark, which meant the babies go to bed. It's getting dark. She had royalty in her heart. She had it all the way down deep in her. And all of us do because what it means that we are created as the pinnacle of creation and in the image of God is that we have a dusty dominion. We have this earth and heaven united royalty in us. All right. Stick with me just for a second here. There are a lot of interpretations of what it means to be the image of God among good Bible-believing peoples. Um, there's a diversity. Could it be that, we, that humans have a conscience? Could it be that humans have a soul? Is that what sets us apart and what it means to be in the image of God? Could it be uh, that we walk on two legs um, and maybe that's what it means to image God? Maybe it's more of a physical thing. Or could it be that we have rational thought that we can string together, we can remember historically and and, uh, and we can, can reason ourselves into and out of all kinds of trouble. So there's all these things that it could mean. We're going to see is something, uh, I want to focus on what the passage actually tells us, though. What's your favorite thing to do at the beach? Nothing. Sitting. That's good. I do that. I'm a wave guy myself, Elijah. I'm big in the waves. I like to throw the football. We'll go for walks. I'm good with that. You know what I never do? I do it only if like, I'm feeling so guilty and ashamed as a failure of a father. I will do this thing. Making sandcastles. 
I do not like to make sandcastles. And you're probably thinking it's the sand, you're a bit of a prissy. That's not it, really. I don't mind being, I don't love all the sand, but I don't mind it. The thing that just frustrates me is that I can never get that darn castle to look like what's in here. Like I have this great imagination for what could be, and then it never comes to pass, and it's just frustrating to me. Like, how do I make it? It's a failure. It's either a failure of, like, technical skill with these hands, and I just can't quite get it to stand up, or I don't have the right things, or it's a failure of imagination. Like, I just imagined things that sand can't actually do. You know, like, if I want to make some thin arch, like, sand doesn't do that. You can't actually do it. And so there's either a failure of imagination or a failure of of, uh, ability. But I want you to think real quick, as we think about what does it mean to be the image of God, that God fails in neither of those two things, ever. So he's creating right now with this crystal clear perception of what man is. And he has ultimate authority and power to bring it about. So he's never a failure of imagination or understanding and never a failure of ability. And so what actually comes to pass is wholly and fully and exactly what he wanted to come to pass in mankind. Okay, so if we're driving at what does it mean to be the image of God and what does this passage tell us about that, it means at the very least that we are whole people who wholly belong to God. That, that you can't separate, is it posture or is it rationality? Because that's a separation of physical from mental or, or soul from body. What it means to be the image of God has got to include this, all this stuff of me, as well as my heart and my loyalties and my desires, my soul. So however we define it has got to include both of those in it. Does that make sense? Because God never fails in bringing about what he desires. And what he desired was exactly as you are. When he made mankind in his image, it was exactly what he wanted. The whole man images the whole God, body and soul. Body and soul. Okay, we should be hearing here echoes of day two. There's a separation of heaven and earth. There's a separation of way up high and way down low. But God creates in his own image body and soul. The whole of man images the whole of God. Image means a unity, and image means ruling. So it means a unity. But it also means ruling. Uh, in ancient times, around this area where this was originally written, uh, images of kings would be set up in other places. So a king may rule from one town, but have authority over these other places that are far away, right? And so what they would do is create an image of the king and set it up in another place. This is what happens to Daniel. Um, with King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel where he refuses to bow down to the image of the king. And to refuse to bow to the image of the king was an an insult to the king himself, right? Why is that? Because the image 
represents the king. The image represents that king's authority in that place. If they wanted to simplify it, why didn't they just put so-and-so king is in charge here, you better watch out, and put it on a sign, right? It's not words, it's an image. And that holds something very different. That holds uh, a closer connection and representation to all that it is connected to, to all of the actualities represented in the image. Image means a ruling. There is a close unity between the image and the king. It's not just a lifeless entity, but to refuse to bow down to it. The image is to refuse to bow down to the king because the image is so closely connected with the king. I love uh, the pictures in Harry Potter. You know, it's different. Who knows the difference? Like, what's different in the wizarding world with pictures? This is an easy one. They move. Joel got it. Joel got it before you, Libby. Sorry. She knows them all. They move, right? It's so fun because the pictures actually move. And so when, uh, when Harry first sees a wizarding picture of his parents who have been long dead, he sees actually more of them than he would if they were still, right? He understands more about them than when they're still. He sees their smile coming and going. He sees them moving. He sees the way they stand. He sees the way they look at each other, if you remember that picture that he, that he has. Because they're moving. Okay, that'd be pretty cool if I was saying, now that's kind of like our image, but hold on. The portraits are even better. Do you remember this? If you have a portrait of yourself, there's actually conversation that takes place. There's actually, uh, that portrait can't, in the, in the wizarding world, not in like my home or something. The portrait can give advice. And, and the portrait is the, is the person uh, to whom you want to speak, right? So when the person, when the actual person dies, their portrait can speak for them and has their personality and, and is their image in a very full sense. All right, stick with me. Portraits in Harry Potter. Psalm 8. Are you ready for this? Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Asked the psalmist. Listen. You made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and uh, all that swim the paths of the sea. You hear in there the echo of our passage that we read, that God made them, gave them dominion. You also hear something that is scandalous. This psalm is not just saying that, that humans are, have, have authority. That's a lot. He's saying they're godlike. That as much as that portrait represents the person on earth in Harry Potter, he's saying this passage and many others like it are saying that God is God to us and we are God to the earth. It's way closer to divinity. Okay, it's dangerously close, and I'm saying things that could get me kicked out of our denomination. Not really. But I, what I want to emphasize is that, we, that you are well undervaluing the person next to you. Because that person is not just royalty, they are close to divinity. The life of heaven combining with the life of earth in mankind and mankind alone. 
We are the only image of God on this earth. And it is dangerously close to divinity. Dan McCartney says, God's rule of earth was, in the original order of creation, accomplished through the agency of, my, of man's vicegerency. That means that God's plan was always to carry out his godlike rule by us carrying out a godlike rule over the earth. What kind of godlike rule is this? He says we're to have dominion as his image bearers. This word uh, is used, obviously has been way misused and not throughout the history of Christianity. It's been manipulated um, to, to, be, to be an excuse for destroying the earth and pillaging the earth for our own benefit, for short-term gain. But this word is not, that's not what this word means um, in, this, in this passage. Uh, other places in the Old Testament where this word is used, it's used to describe Solomon's good rule in 1 Kings Four Solomon is the third king of Israel. They're in their land. David was the uh, the king of uh, of blood and conquest. Solomon is the king of peace and prosperity, the wisest to ever rule. And if you remember, the ends of the earth are coming to Israel to receive guidance, to receive um, to receive rule over them. And dominion is used in that sense to bring about prosperity. It's also used in Leviticus 25 in commanding a master not to be harsh with the master's servant. To rule over that servant in a gentle way. And a king in Psalm 72 is described as having dominion and being a king who is a champion of the poor. So this is a compassionate dominion it's a costly dominion it's a it's a dusty dominion you know as i I get a little bit older i find it close to comical what i'm sold as beautiful i guess it made sense when i was like 18 or 22 that the image of beauty that our predominant culture wants to give me is some like untested only ever been served, young, barely out of teenagehood girl. Like that's supposed to be beautiful. It's lovely in its own right. You know what's beautiful? You know what God calls beautiful? Pear shape. We think that's such a bad thing. We go, oh, it's all going pear shape. But I think God really likes that. I think he's into the pear shape. You know why? Because that's, that has been, that's beauty for service. That is a life that has been given Gray hair and and wrinkles are gorgeous. We are being sold this whole bill of goods that that beauty is in like uh, something pristine and untouched. That's not God's plan. God says, here's the creation, get dirty. You got to bring out the beauty in it. It's not done yet. You have dominion. You got to work it. You got to get your fingernails dirty. Beauty is, is, is dirty. This is a dirty dominion. This is a dusty thing to become beautiful image bearers. A whole person, body and soul, given to service, given to compassionate dominion, extending the life of heaven, coloring all the earth.
Think again, that's why Poldark and Demelza are so alluring to us. It's this lowly life of earth united with this high-born kingliness. And we think, are you really supposed to be making bread right now? And like sweeping out the stables? Aren't you a lady? Aren't you supposed to be doing this all this um, important, like, fancy stuff? Is Poldark really supposed to be down in the mines helping the people that he... Uh, that, that he works with to, to find copper that would then put food on their tables? Is he supposed to be doing that? Is he supposed to be wearing a wig and making laws? I don't know. I'm a little confused. But I love it. The meeting of heaven and earth was always supposed to happen through man exercising his and her dusty dominion under our high king. That was God's plan from all along. So why isn't it all humming along? Why aren't things going just perfectly? Why do we see this creation, why have things improved from there? The image has been marred. The image has been marred. Our first father, our first father did not exercise his dominion. It was a failure of dominion, not because he didn't cultivate fruit trees, or name the animals, he did those things, but he failed in exercising dominion over himself. He gave in to temptation, and the first dominion failed. The scripture tells us in him we've all failed, and this image of God, this royal image, has been marred in all of us. And we have a hint in our passage how it's going to be set right. Our narrator calls attention to this event in a number of ways, but one of them is this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. This is a canonical reading, Scott. So what does that mean? There have been a lot of stabs at that interpretation. What, what could that mean? I think a great way to understand this is some early version of the plurality in our Godhead. There's a unity of our God and plurality. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit are in some very small way represented here. In other words, that God knew that it was going to take a plurality to fix this problem. And that Proverbs 8 is not, uh, is not crazy when Proverbs 8 declares that, that uh, from early, from the beginning, the word wisdom was with God creating. And then John 1 picks up on that and says the same thing, that the word, Jesus Christ, was with God in the beginning, and through him all things have been created. All right, so where does this, where does this bring us? Our, our image bearing has failed. Our first father failed. But we know there's this plurality. We know there's this one from whom, from the beginning of time, who's been with God, who is God, who, who is created. And then we're told he's going to come. Isaiah 9, if you remember, we read at Christmas all the time, says... Uh, his government will, be, will have no end. He's going to bring about peace. He'll be called Wonderful, Almighty, Prince of 
Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. That's kind of an interesting one. Everlasting there could be translated Father from of old. The Father, the way back Father. Who's the, who's the Father from of old? Who's the first Father? Adam. He's going to be called the second Adam. He's going to be called the Adam who will get it right who will exercise a dusty dominion by raising people from the dead, by casting out sickness and demons, by calming uh, the chaos seas. But he's actually going to get the first dominion right at the most crucial moment. In our passage that we read in Matthew 26, Jesus is there praying in the garden. He says he's sorrowful and troubled even to the point of death. It is clear that he knows what's coming. He knows the storm that is coming, the storm of God's wrath, and he does not want to face it. And he pleads, if there's another way, please. And he acknowledges, my will right now is to have this pass. If there is another way, that's what I want. But what's his prayer? Not my will, but thine be done, yours be done. He exercises dominion over himself and submits to his father. On our behalf. And so that so he could take the punishment that we deserve in our first Adam and in our disobedience. It wasn't just a dusty obedience, dusty dominion, it became a bloody obedience as he went to the cross for the life of the world. Bodily dying to bring the life of heaven. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the king, he will restore the image of God in you. Philippians 2 gives us a hint about this. Paul commands us to work out our salvation, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. This word work out is commonly used in those times to describe what a farmer does when he cultivates his land. When he gets it, when he, when he gets it ready to grow and prosper. Work out your salvation. Cultivate the salvation God has given to you. Loosen up the soil of your heart. Work out what God has worked in and a dusty dominion over yourself first. This image of God language is also used in other surrounding cultures, but like I said, it's always used of kings, never used of the farmer or the canal digger or the servant, never used of of woman, But our God says mankind, male and female, are my image. That universality of of humans, of mankind, is actually the firm basis for all justice. You know, if we don't have a common starting place, if we don't have a, a common dignity, even a royalty, even something that approaches divinity, then why does it matter how we treat other people? Why does it matter whether you are into this... um, you know, reconciliation with uh, uh, materially poor, reconciliation with the racially different. Who cares? 
unless they're image bearers, unless we have a common dignity with them. Do you see how this gives us the launching pad for care for others, for getting dirty in our, in our dominion? I want to, uh, you know, so as a, as a very concrete, um, very concrete application, I want to give a shout out to our own Chalmers Center. We have a number of folks in our community who work for them and, and uh, are partners with the poor, uh, attempting to equip the church to end the, the bondage of material poverty in the world. I was at their 20th anniversary celebration the other night, which was a great and wonderful celebration. And I just want to encourage you, if you don't know what it means to have a dusty dominion over your sphere of influence, use those resources. Uh, I think they're very valuable. There's a very good baseline one called, uh, am I a good neighbor? Um, that one's online, right, Michael? Is that also print or just online? Just online, very baseline, first steps. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does it mean to exercise a dusty dominion over where God, uh, the spheres of influence that God has placed me in? Remember, as we do this, um, as Eric often says, if you, if you help people in trouble, you're going to get trouble on you. And you and I are... Uh, we don't have a whole lot of strength for that, for that trouble that we're going to get on us as we exercise a dusty dominion, as we're earthy in our service and, uh, and heavenly uh, in our compassion. But that's why our God feeds us. That's why our God says to, says to us, among many other things, come to me in this table. In this table where, where heaven and earth are united, where we have these common everyday elements. It's just bread. It's just bread that everybody needs every day to stay alive. And it's in this meal that he says, I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you the life of heaven in this earthly He wants to feed in us. He wants to grow in us. He wants to ever transform us in the earth into that loyalty, into that dignity, even into that And so, Christ, on the night he was betrayed, as he shared a meal with his disciples, took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. This is my body. This is the heavenly, earthly man. This is the ultimate holdark. The man of earth and the man of heaven. This is my body given for you. Take it. Eat it. All of it. And in like manner, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant cut in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now, this is a meal for the family, this is a meal for those. Uh, who, who say and who believe uh, body and soul that this heavenly man lived and died in our place. And if that's not where you are, I'm going to encourage you to, to refrain from taking this meal. To sit and uh, remain where you are and 
Just think about why the Lord has you here today, what he's, what he's talked to you about, how he is even now reaching out to you. I also want to remind you, if you're pretty sure that that is what you want to be true about Jesus, if you want to want this all to be true, if you kind of hope that you are in on this Jesus thing, then you need to come. Because our wise ancestors in the faith have called this a meal for the weak. It's a meal for those who want to want to believe. It's a meal for building in you the life of heaven. Heavenly Father, we 